Hope does not trust chiefly in grace already received, but on God's omnipotence and mercy, whereby even he that has not grace can obtain it, so as to come to eternal life. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Magnus Podcast. Before we jump into the conversation with Chelsea Nemec, I wanted to remind you that courses begin this week in the Magnus Fellowship. And this is truly one of our best round of courses yet. You can study George Bernanos with senior fellow Deal Hudson. You can study T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland with John Free and The Gospel of John with our very own John Johnson and Anthony Esselin. Apply to the Magnus Fellowship today. Register for these courses. They're completely free. It's quick, easy, no commitment, and you can enroll in these courses today. But without any more rambling, enjoy this conversation with Chelsea Nemec, John Johnson, and Larissa Bianco about Thomas Aquinas and the virtue of hope. Welcome back, everybody, to the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson, joined by Larissa, soon to be Bianco in the thick of wedding preparation. How are you doing, Larissa? I am doing well. How are you? Good. Yeah, wedding planning is so unfun. But after you're married, you'll get to go to other people's weddings and take a sick delight in knowing how much they suffered and how much you get to just enjoy drinking the booze That's right. without effort. So hang in there, almost there. And then we'll officially change your last name to match what the uh, introduction audio clip played. <laughs> yeah, we got a little ahead of ourselves there, but I've been enjoying it. <laughs> that's, that's called foresight. Uh, so our guest today, very special. And very excited to have her here of the classic learning test, Chelsea Nemec. Hello, Chelsea. Yeah, hello. So glad to be here with you guys. It's great to be here too. I was so impressed by an essay of yours that I read, and it was an essay in the in the classical sense. Some people write essays and they're just sort of thoughts on paper, but you had a specific question, which is what an essay is, and that is that is uh, on the hope of being a wayfarer. And Wayfarers are my favorite style Ray-Ban sunglasses, of course. But uh, let's just get right into it. Uh, What is the difference between a Wayfarer and a Wanderer in the sense of hope? Hmm. Good question. Well, so the Wayfarer has a direction. The Wanderer uh, is could be said to be on a journey of sorts, but you know, yeah. I, I titled it this because, uh, you know, I wrote uh, this paper, this essay um, for my one of my grad classes uh, for a, a class called Aquinas on the Virtues. And so this is St. Thomas Aquinas, of course. Um, and he talks about in the Summa Theologiae, he in the in the the uh, portion on hope that he's addressing the theological virtue of hope, uh, he talks about. Um, how Christ, you know, he says, although Christ was a comprehension and therefore blessed as to the enjoyment of God, nevertheless, he was at the same time a wayfarer as regards the passibility of nature to which he was still subject. So Christ was a wayfarer. He took on that um, that condition of man uh, as being in between um in between destinations of sorts, you know, we've been placed uh, on a spiritual journey on this in this earthly life, and we have a destination. Uh, and so that's what Thomas Aquinas is, uh, you know, mentioning when he uses that image: is that our destination as uh, as humans uh, is to arrive at a particular place, and in this case, heaven. Um, so all of our life is spent uh, is spent. Uh, reforming ourselves and, uh, you know, and learning about going deeper into the heart of God and um, acquiring uh, virtue um, so that we might 
uh, reach that destination um, that we long for, that every human heart longs for. Uh, and so Aquinas, you know, uses that image of the wayfarer um, versus the wanderer. The wanderer would be um, these, you know, perhaps a soul that doesn't realize this calling, doesn't realize that they have a place to go, a destination uh, to be. And and one of uh, my favorite images as I was writing that that paper was of um, was of Bilbo Baggins. Um, yeah. Uh, the Hobbit of Middle Earth, right? Where, you know, he's called to this adventure, right? And perhaps before this calling, he might've just been um, a wanderer going about his days, doing things as he wishes and uh, living the Hobbit life that we're all, you know, very fond of. I'm, you know, I can't imagine anybody that's not fond of life in the Shire. But at the same time, the story is so meaningful because he now has a calling. He now has uh, a purpose and a direction. Um, and so he becomes a wayfarer, uh, with his fellowship and goes on the journey, um, that he's being called to. And so that was, I guess, to answer that question about the difference, um, is that the, the calling, right. Is, is really the main difference is the wanderer is, has not realized, has not yet realized or heard their calling. Um, and the wayfarer is somebody that is actively in pursuit of that. Wow. So there's so much to unpack there. In what respect could we say that Christ has hope, or can we say that at all? I think Aquinas says specifically, right, that because he he, as you said earlier, he's a comprehensor from the beginning. He's he's full knowledge and unity, the essence of God. He has the beatific vision, so he certainly doesn't have faith. Right. Is there any sense in which we could say he has hope, given that he is the end toward which the will strives to attain through this virtue? Hmm. Man, I wish I was a theologian here. <laughs> I would say I my from what I've read with Thomas, um, I would say that he's put himself in the position of enduring the need for hope. But as he's God, I would imagine he is the fulfillment of hope at the same time as he's still partaking in the life of a wayfarer. Um, so part of me says no, but I don't know if that's the theologically. Right. I, think, I think you're spot on. I think Aquinas would agree with you. Good job. Um, and we, we obviously didn't have you here to give you a, a, a quiz on Aquinas. But if we look <laughs> at the third part of the Summa, question seven, article four, on whether the question, whether or not Christ had hope. Yeah. The answer that Aquinas gives is, is oh, actually really beautifully aligned with what you said. Now, from the beginning of his conception, Christ had the divine fruition fully, as will be shown. Right. Nevertheless, he had hope as regards to such things as he did not yet possess, although he had not faith with regard to anything, because although he knew things fully, wherefore faith was altogether wanting to him, nevertheless, he did not as yet fully possess all that pertained to his perfection, namely his immortality and his glory of the body, which he could hope for. And I think we could add our fruition in him also is something which we, uh, which we could say he hoped for. Yeah. So it's beautiful. So even Christ in a sense shares in our wayfarerness. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I think that that is the message of the incarnation, you know? Yes. Share this journey with us. He came to uh, show us how to wayfare, you know, how to find our way in this dark, you know, in the darkness of this, this earthly life that isn't our home. Um, and so I think that is, um, yeah, that, that is something so beautiful that he didn't have to do um, being God. He, he, he chose to, um, to show us out of his immense mercy and charity to show us how to be wayfarers ourselves. I, I think Aquinas uses the phrase a status via Torre, right? A status, 
a viator, a somebody on the way, and he would probably become that. It seems like the millennial generation would much prefer, and in fact is disposed to be at wondering rather than at on the way to a particular destination in hope. Uh, young people today, whether or not I would call myself one of them, I'm on, I'm on the brink of millennialism, I guess, but Young people today would prefer to scroll through Netflix options for two hours rather than decide something to watch and watch it. Right. That, that seems to be a particular plague of our generation. Larissa? Yeah, your paper talks about how Tolkien, Tolkien is focused on the arrival. And it's funny going off of what John just said, our culture loves phrases like, the progress is in the journey, you know, like it's all about the journey. The journey is where the growth is, but it's there for getting the end goal. Right. Um, but I don't think like you could even get to this conversation with a lot of young people today because a lot of them don't even accept the reality of ex- objective truth, for example, like that they're, they can actually know that something is real. Um, and so one of the parts in my paper that, that I, had fun writing was like the, 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 uh, wanderers, some of them just spend their life, you know, dawdling about, they tie and untie their shoes. They, you know, they can't commit to things. They, you know, are hesitant to step out of their comfort zone and go into the unknown. Um, and I think a big part of that is just because young people are, uh, gripped by, by, um, a, false uh i don't even know how to put it like a like a like a nihilism of you know there is no objectivity so how can they know that they have a calling how can they know that they have a purpose and a direction and a meaning so that do you is so wonderful what, yeah, go ahead larissa do you think that's what article four is objection one is referring to because he says i'm not sure entirely what this means maybe you can help but it says for hope resides in the will. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that, what does that mean? Does that mean it's a choice and maybe they're not seeing that? Like what, what does it mean that hope resides in the will? Right. So the, there are um, different appetites. There's the higher appetite, which is the will and the lower appetite, which is the irascible appetites. And so that higher appetite um, of the will, like you're saying, is is a choice, and it's not a, a feeling, um, so to speak, in, in a more modern, uh, understandable sense of it. Um, and so, you know, I, I have talked to, you know, several of my family members or friends who are kind of caught in this, and they're looking for a sensible, like a sensible feeling of of God. For example, they they want to see him. Oh, if God appeared to me tomorrow, I would, I would believe. Right. And, and it's, it's almost like, uh, there has to be this 100%, uh, certainty before they're willing to even commit and set out on the journey, um, in any form, right. And to ask questions that might make them uncomfortable, um, and consider there's a resistance there's a resistance to the danger that you speak about in your essay. We're not willing to embark upon a great journey that necessarily involves peril as right. Frodo Benz was. Why, why is that? I think you, you said something beautifully earlier, but that, that there's this nihilism at the, at the root of it. So without an objective truth, there's no objective talos, which means there's no destination, which yeah, means we need to sort of, like, what's the danger of setting exactly. out that might not be true in their opinion? I mean, if you're coming from a, a sense of, if you're coming from that perspective of like most modern millennials, Gen Zers, like if you're coming from that perspective, you just don't want to look like a fool, right? If you set out on the adventure, you're just another foolish Christian that uh, is deluding themselves, right? But it, it's, you know, it, of course, those that set out, you you encounter things along the way that change your life and change your perspective. And it's almost like getting people to even step out the door is 
half the battle, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think we're plagued by this, uh, you know, the trophy generation of the nineties growing up where we were told you could be anything and you can be an astronaut, you can be the president. And we're so committed to this idea of being anything that we refuse to decide in the most literal sense, right? Uh, 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 decide, pesticide, suicide, homicide. The side is the important part. You got to cut off, you got to kill everything but one option. And right. we are so afraid to not be something that we find ourselves paralyzed and unable to be anything. And that's why you get these 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds who just can't get going, right? And I, was, yeah. I have a couple of friends. It's like, dude, just go pick out a wife and marry her. And <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's not that easy. I'm like, it kind of is that easy. Uh, yeah. it, and you got, and it's dangerous. You got to take a leap because you're saying no to everything else and everybody else. But when you do that, when you just pick it's pick a pick a path and move toward the good there's such liberation in that yeah and i don't want to minimize discernment you know your path is. oh sorry john go ahead oh you go ahead well i did i just i don't want to minimize like discernment right in like this process where you can you know make rational arguments and and come to you know um come to that choice uh intentionally and and of course none of us would uh, minimize that. But at the same time, um, even making the choice to discern is like, you know, paral- it just seems that, like you said, there's a paralysis, there's a, um, a slothfulness, um, that is a huge temptation today. Uh, and, and so, um, it seems like the, just committing to something like you're saying, just commit. One of my patron saints is St. Joan of Arc. Um, and she, one of her most famous quotes is act and God will act. Uh, so like with marriage and dating and things like that, that's a big thing I, I've, you know, dealt with over the years personally, but also with friends and uh, family members. And for some, it can be paralyzing. Like I need to discern my vocation. I need to wait till I have a calling, but of course it's like, just go on a date, see if you like the person, you know, so go put yourself out there instead of waiting for heaven to come down to earth for you, you know, for this magical revelation of your future spouse. Um, so that's Amen. another where we can encourage that wayfarerness and the vocation specifically like marriage or religious life. Are you married, Chelsea? I am married of almost five years. So you're speaking from experience. This is great. Yes. yes I am speaking from experience. How do we compel ourselves to move back into a place of hope that sort of characterized previous generations. There, there are generations that are famous for this ambitious, uh, uh, daring hope and grit, and we don't have any of that. So what's missing? Well, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I grew up near NASA in Houston. Uh, and if you want to talk about a place of daring and and hope and great adventure. I mean, that's the place to talk about. Um, even though I didn't appreciate it all the time when I was growing up, because like when you live somewhere, it's just, you know, whatever astronauts, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) but you know, I think so Aquinas talks about, uh, the object of hope as a future good arduous, but possible to attain. Mm. And, um, so like those previous generations, like, uh, the, the moon, uh, the missions, uh, lunar missions, right? Um, These were arduous tasks. Like the engineers were computing manually, like these entire missions. And the computer that ran these rockets and ran these missions was so, uh, so basic that it's a miracle somewhat that, you know, just landing on the moon actually succeeded. But it was the task of so many different people that saw this arduous goal um, and worked and worked and worked um, to make it uh, come to fruition. They had this, you know, and I think that's, there's a couple of keys here, you know, hope is a future good, right? So it's not a present good. That would be presumption to just say that we've already attained what we, we have, uh, what we desire. 
there's no work to be done. We're already there. We've already met our reached our destination. That would be presumption or delusion. <laughs> um, arduous, right, means that it would take, you know, I guess that's also presumption to assume that something's not going to be difficult, um, but then it's possible to attain. And that point's really important because that would be the con that would contrast despair, uh, which would say that it's impossible to attain. Uh, and so those different components of the definition are, are important. And I think we can reclaim that by doing hard things. I guess that seems really simple, but like using our intellect and our God-given gifts and talents to the absolute maximum that that we can in our state in life and in our place and, and where we've been called to be in our work or um or in our vocation, but maximizing those gifts and dreaming and and being very creative about what's possible um, so that we can achieve those things, if not only for the pure delight that comes with that achievement, right? And I think we've lost touch with the delight that comes with real, real, real long suffered achievement. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I'm sure you've read Peeper, Joseph Peeper's On Hope. Have you read this? Um, it's not this one. Yeah, uh, that's the hope is the middle essay. He he wrote yeah. it separately. And have you have you have you read it? I'm sure oh, yeah. you have. Yeah. You're holding it right now. Yeah, uh, it's beautiful. And if anybody has uh, not yet encountered the beauty of Joseph or Joseph Peeper, hope on hope is a great place to start. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's of all his theological virtue treatises, it's probably the most complete and the most exhaustive and the most accessible. So uh, you you touched on this, and I want to sort of dive into it a little bit here. But you said that the the virtue of hope is flanked by two opposite vices: an excess and a deficiency. And right. the, the excess would be something like a false certainty that your end has already been achieved. Uh, you know, this might this might even be familiar to many of our, our Protestant listeners, right? The, uh, the I'm saved. I've been saved. You know that. It's it sort of rings of presumption, right? Because clearly there, you know, there's a sense in which you know redemption is is at hand, but you you don't yet have the beatific vision. So, right. but on the other end of that is uh, what we we call, I guess, despair, right? The I can never be saved, right. and uh, and either of those are are missing the mark dreadfully when it comes to hope. So. Give us some practical wisdom and 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 contemporaneous wisdom, I would say, for uh, just practical tips to cultivate the virtue of hope in light of those two pitfalls that are so so common these days. Mm. Man, I'm so um, like I'm such an amateur on my own wayfaring journey. I'm so young and uh, have so much to learn. So I can offer my own, um, I guess, things I've learned over my short <laughs> journey um, so far. Um, so some practical tips for hope. I would say to, I think the, that keeping it as a part of the will is really important because oftentimes we're not going to, our emotions, our passions are not going to align with reality all the time. <laughs> Um, probably most of the time, uh, if you're me. So we can always feel like things are impossible or uh, feel like maybe we've we've won, you know, we've won the battle if we're in a particular uh, high point uh, and we've arrived and we're good and we can kick our feet back. But I think it's really important to step back from that, from the emotional side of things and just look at things a little more objectively. And, and, um, and so I think that would be my first tip is not to let emotions get, uh, run the show. And then the other thing is, um, to cultivate it in smaller ways. I would say that God, you know, entrusts great things to those that are faithful to in the smaller things. So looking at 
how we can execute that virtue, um, engage that virtue and, and strengthen it in smaller things. Um, and like I said, this can just be doing, doing hard things that, that you might enjoy. Like my father, he's a carpenter, so he, uh, will build projects and just by, by taking on a craft or a project of some sort, when you have to, you know, you have to work on something repeatedly over a course of time, maybe a course of a summer, you're building a project. Like my father built, he's currently building a sailboat with my brother. And they've been working on it for a couple of years. And of course, I'm sure there are points where they're just tired and they would rather it just be done or they would like to just give up at certain points. But I think taking on a craft uh, can help strengthen that virtue. Um, And then when you get to the bigger things in your life, like marriage, uh, like we talked about, or having children or just your own spiritual life um, in larger ways, um, I think that that those little things help to, to, um, provide some, some strength in, in the bigger parts of life. Uh, Okay. So so this is awesome. I want to talk the craft. I think there is some true wisdom there. And this is like Jordan Peterson gives the example or what somebody does make your bed every day. Yeah. Because that trains you through happy tooth to, say, look, I could do something that I didn't want to do and I did it and I, and it was great. Like I appreciate the good of doing this thing. So train yourself for fulfillment that requires real effort. Okay. And there's two sides of that from, from a modern perspective, why we don't like that idea. One, we hate effort. Okay. So, and this is why young men are basically training themselves to be forever paralyzed by lives of for instance, video games and pornography, because you're giving yourself a counterfeit good of fulfillment through like no effort. I just, you know, even go back to Super Mario World days, I just saved a princess out of the, and rescued her from a dragon. It's this great good. It's fantastic, but it's a great good. Uh, but it involved you pushing buttons for two minutes while, while jingly noises. And music right. played for you. Uh, and yeah, so you're training. Kind of harder. Like there's a different kind of difficulty that you have to overcome to make your bed versus to achieve a goal on a video game. Um, there might be some difficulty in that, I would suspect. Um, I have family members that play video games, and I think that there might be some difficulty intellectually, strategy, right? But at the same time, there's not, there's something missing to, it's not a whole, it's not your whole soul engaging in that, your whole body and soul, com, you know, component. No. And it's, and it's way too passive in the wrong sort. I mean, this video, this, this video game, uh, pornography lifestyle that, that is the, uh, that is the soup du jour for most young men. It's training yourself to be completely passive intellectually. So it has a sort of character of theoretical contemplation, but the end is completely counterfeit. So you're, you're missing the mark by, by a long shot. So, so, that, so that's, I, I didn't want to understate the beauty of what you just said, that if you want to cultivate hope, any virtue for that matter, um, start with, I mean, crafts, like small, small things that you can accomplish, whether that's building a sailboat or building a sailboat in a bottle or making your bed every morning. Do things that are arduous that can be accomplished and then slowly work your way toward harder things. Now, I want to focus, I want to really add a, add a caveat here because sometimes when I listen to like, uh, uh, my husband's really into like Jocko Willink and a lot of these like oh, yeah. Navy SEAL guys, uh, David Goggins, right? So he's really into all those guys. And it's almost, <laughs> yeah, so it's like there a lot of them like the pain, you know, it's like, it's the, you know, for the pain. And while I think, I, th- I don't know if that's really what they mean when they say that, because I almost think, why, why would you make your bed every day? You make your bed because like, it feels nice to put your life in order, like in that way. And you feel good when you come home and your bed's made and your life just see- is more orderly in that way. And if it has a, a real tangible feeling, like anybody that has those habits, feels better. You know, you just feel better when you wake up early and do a workout and 
you feel better when you make your bed. Um, and I want to emphasize the point of bringing that up is that find something where you can, you pick a good, uh, that future good that you want to introduce into your life. And then you can keep that good in mind. Like, why do you eat healthy? It's so that you have that good of health that you're pursuing. Um, why do you make your bed? It's because you want that good. And I think that in the Christian life, like we don't like, like, we don't always like being virtuous. Like we don't want to be virtuous, but we do it because we want heaven. That's the good we're after. And we're not just in it for the pain of this life. Like that's not why we're, why we, uh, you know, are. No. And in fact, virtue always feels good. Any habit feels good. It's difficult to grow the habit. So building a virtue, changing any habit is always painful. I mean, you know, if you're right-handed, you don't brush your teeth with your left hand. Try doing it for three days. It'll be painful. (laughs) For a fourth day, it'll be less painful and less painful and less painful. And after you've brushed your teeth with your left hand, you know, for seven months or whatever, you'll have the habit and it'll be pleasant. And it might even be hard to go back to brushing with your right hand. Uh, But that's how habits are made. But but once they once they are had, once they're uh, as Aquinas says, second nature, they become pleasant, uh, and 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 all habits are pleasant, whether or not they're good habits or bad habits. Mm-hmm. If you don't smoke, it's very painful to take your first drag of a cigarette, uh, as my grandpa would uh, demonstrate <laughs> to me when I was six. I said, what are you doing, Grandpa? He's like, here, try it. He's like, that'll break you of it. Uh, but if you do smoke a lot, then it will be very painful not to take that drag of a cigarette. So the pleasure pain ratio is so important because anytime you're changing or moving a habit, it's painful. Um, I, I, I want to get your thoughts on because I struggle in certain ways, you know, and I won't say which ones with with uh, you know presumption or despair. Right, but. So there's a beautiful, well, there's two beautiful sections I want to talk about, get your thoughts on, from the biography of St. John Vianney oh, and okay. uh, by Truchin. Absolutely beautiful. If you haven't read it, it's, it'll change your life. Okay. So in one section, it's, it's the end of the book when he's dying. And the saint who's so full of life and so full of hope and probably never committed, almost certainly never committed a mortal sin in his life. And very beautifully simple, holy, his whole life. And he breaks down and he finds out he's dying. And he says, I just wish I had a little bit more time to weep for my sins. Mm. Okay. So what that it looks a little like despair. It's mm-hmm. Almost certainly not. Um, but on the other hand, there's another story in the same book where Vianney would hear confessions, locked himself in a confessional for hours and hours at a time, ate nothing but a, you know, a, a rotting, rotting potato. <laughs> and, and he was also known, he had this gift for uh, discerning souls and, re, you know, basically knowing the sins before they walked in the building and knowing why people were there. He was very gifted, but there's a story of a woman who makes this arduous pilgrimage to ours and they had i think installed a train station at this little town uh just to get people there more expediently and she shows up and waits all day from this difficult journey to to she waits all day to get to get the curie's opinion on something Mm -hmm. and it turns out her husband had jumped off a bridge and killed himself he was an atheist her husband was an atheist it took his life she was a devout Catholic and she was completely uh, in a state of despair over his soul. Mm. Okay. She's waiting, waiting, waiting. Vianney never, uh, you know, there's too many people in the crowd, whatever. All of a sudden, this saint bursts out of, I think he was in the confessional. He bursts out of the confessional. She's about to leave because she's got to catch her train back. He runs right up to her, hobbles up to her. And looks at her in the face and says, he was saved and turns around and walks away. And she says, wait, what are you talking about? How do you know this? He was an atheist. And Vianney was almost frustrated at this point. He turns around, he walks back to her and he says, ah, two things. 
one. On the way down, she said, yes. He said, on the way down, he repented. She said, okay. And he, and then he said, secondly, you know that picture of the sacred heart you kept up in your bedroom? She said, yes. He said, he did not object. And sometimes he would pray with you. Turns around, walks back to the confessional. And this woman goes home uh, confident in her husband's salvation because of that. Wow. Okay. Now, so how do you juxtapose those two things when Vianney himself, the saint, is, uh, is, is wishing he had more time to weep for his sins? And surely there were few comparatively. And at the same time, telling this lady that her atheist suicided husband was indeed saved, you see two different extremes. Okay. And each of us, when it comes to hope, tend to miss in one way or the other. So for the person who tends to be presumptuous, we should meditate on these uh, moments like Vianney in his, in his last days. And for the person who tends to, be, tends to despair, we should meditate on the atheist who was saved, right? But hitting the exact mean condition is the goal. And that's tricky because it's a very fine point right so you t- just take it from there what do you what do you what do you think about that as far as the the difficulty of hitting the mean of hope mm, that's that was a beautiful story first of all um those two examples are striking um so i think the only thing i could i could contribute is that we have finite intellects. Um, and so when we're judging, uh, what is, uh, possible, right. Or what, uh, is a, is a good, for example, you know, we, each of us has, um, I think, first of all, I think there are ways to like inform us on what the good is, but I do think that to some extent we're fallible creatures and we can differ and, and, uh, have a, have a difficult time really finding what that, that is, um, what is truly good and what is truly possible, um, or impossible. So I think that might be one dimension is just our fallibility that could account for the differences in what, which way people lean. Um, and so, yeah, in Catholic, there are lots of Catholic saints that I've heard of that have examples like the ones you shared both on both sides um, and I would say right, the, right. the explanation for that is probably divine. I mean, there's a supernatural, obviously, element to these saints where they get supernatural uh, wisdom, supernatural um, intervention in their lives and in their intellects where they're given knowledge um, that, that, you know, the ordinary wayfarer um, won't have. So I think we have to do our best to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, uh, to pursue the teachings of the Catholic church as Catholics see it, um, to, um, read these stories of the saints. And, and I think all of us have due to our temperaments, um, we lean one way or the other, uh, you know, I definitely lean more towards despair. I, I think I'm more tempted in that direction. Um, which is, is the worst of the two. So, um, you have to be very careful to, uh, to make sure that, um, that like you said, you're, you're, you are reinforcing, uh, the opposite. I think there's some wisdom in that to, to read stories of, of, um, of hope and, and true hope and, and on the opposite side, like, you know, the presumptuous side, so to speak, but, but of course, keeping in mind the balance, I think it's possible to have the balance. I really think it is. Um, I, I, and I, and I know it's a fine, fine line, but I think that's the spiritual life. You know, the whole spiritual life is like that. So of course it's possible for us to, to have hope and to balance them properly. It just takes maybe guidance from a friend or guidance from family um or reading lots and lots and lots of different stories of 
like you've mentioned, of saints and their experiences and how they've overcome certain things. Um, and like one story I'll share, for example, that's more personal, um, is that my husband and I have had two miscarriages. Um, and that's very painful. It's a very painful experience to go through miscarriage. Um, and, and a lot of times people are very um, rightly so uh, tempted to to despair, right? If you have a miscarriage, when will I ever have children again? Will I be able to have a healthy pregnancy? Um, these thoughts are very easy to, um, these thoughts are very uh, common, right? Amongst, amongst such tragedy. Yes. But um, that's just one practical example of where you need people around you to help you through that. Um, you need to lean on people and and read lots of stories because just for, for miscarriage, for example, there's so many people that have had, gosh, I, I read stories of people that are have had nine miscarriages and then had a successful pregnancy. So it's just, there's always hope it feels like for, for um, our life and for these circumstances that our intellect might tell us, you know, I, this seems impossible. This due to my intellect, what the doctor's telling me due to this or that, whatever circumstance you're in, this might be impossible or that might seem impossible, but the supernatural with God, everything is possible. So there's always that hope, even if, even if the world or our finite human intellects perceive impossibility. And so I guess that's the despair side that I can weigh in on from personal experience. And Chelsea, this is exactly what you talk about at the end of your paper, when you talk about fairy tales and, um, how at this point of despair, they could give up. You know, we all experience some point of despair, but when fairy tale characters arrive there, like true wayfarers, they don't give us hope and they have some divine or magical um, intervention that saves them. And then you also mentioned in there, this goes back to John's original question about fairy tales require you to see yourself. And you say, you know, you look at a, in a mirror every day. We see pictures of ourselves every day, but we don't see ourselves. And we might not even realize that we're falling into despair. We mm-hmm. might not realize we're being presumptuous. We might not even know where we fall or why we're falling there. But mm-hmm. if we can just see ourselves, and sometimes it takes stories and fairy tales or going to confession or stories of saints to see ourselves. But I, I love that point about knowing yourself. Yeah, the fairy tales are a perfect example. Like that that divine intervention is classic fairy tale plot where it comes to the brink of despair practically. It's everything is lost. You know, the the father's three daughters are captives or whatever the story is. Um and it comes to that point where, you know, God takes us there so that we can uh really receive that gift of his salvation, his saving hand in our lives. And I think that's so, that's so beautiful. That's the Christian story. You know, we, we were taken to despair as Christians through original sin. And, and, and then at the pinnacle of that, you know, God intervened and, and saved us through his mercy. And that's just, that's the story. That's, that's what hope is, is that against all odds, there's, there's a, you know, divine creator. And that's why it's a theological virtue. It's amen. But that's ultimately right. You know, naturally we can cultivate hope by never giving up in the face of despair and never being complacent in the face of perceived certainty. But ultimately God will bring us to the brink. uh, And, and, and that's how we know it's working is in our darkest moments in the shadow of his wings. But ultimately, hope is a gift. Mm-hmm. And so he will supply the motivation for our will to achieve our final end. That is that is himself. Right. And I would say ask for it. Ask for that gift. That's even a gift in itself. But I'm telling you, whoever is listening right now, if that's what you need, just ask. God will always give it to you. It's it's It will come. So... There's a very common misconception in our culture through through Christians 
that if we, I have heard Christians preach this to me, that if you believe in Jesus, you will not suffer because (laughs) I have been told that something's wrong with you if you're suffering, but the church fathers tell us the complete opposite. You cannot be saved without suffering. It is suffering. It is truly suffering that takes you to the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Yeah. I think of mother Teresa who everybody thinks is like this happy nun. Um, she endured what's called the dark night of the soul for 40 years where she could not feel God's presence in prayer. Um, that was basically the whole of her ministry. So like she did so many great things and it was all, it was almost as if the suffering was the source of it. Her hope through that suffering was of her joy and her, her, ability to love others, um, which is so counterintuitive to, (laughs) to what we might feel or think, you know? Amen. And, uh, is I, we could talk to you for hours, Chelsea, this is, this is beautiful. Uh, we are going to have you back, um, but, uh, to put a little bow on things, let's give a reading list. I mean, so the Summa, of Aquinas is very lucid, very clear. And you, you wrote your paper, Secunda Secunde. Where do people, where do people find yeah, this question? Because so, you read it in ten minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the uh, they can go to Secunda Secunde, uh, question eighteen, article one is the one that I'm pulling from, and it's the reply to objection one in that um, article where it says the object of the irascible is an arduous sensible, but the object of the virtue of hope is an arduous intelligible or rather a supra intelligible um, uh, good. And it's talking about the, the object of being a good that's arduous, but possible to attain. So that's where I would point people in the Summa. Um, like you said, Joseph yeah. is a great resource as well. Uh, for more on Thomas, there's Thomas Aquinas on the Passions um, by Robert Minor. Hmm. And if they want to know more about Thomas's story, um, The Angelic Doctor by Jacques Maritain is another good one. Uh, so those are the the ones I can I can think of. But I also I could probably maybe in the show notes, can I can we attach a PDF of the paper? We'll do a PDF in the show notes or a link to a PDF. And uh, and then plus I know you're you're running something at the, at the CLT. Oh, yeah. Um, and then what else, what else are you working on? There's something Larissa mentioned to me that I had not heard of the, what, what is this Larissa that we got to ask her about? Catholic invitation initiative. Yes. Yeah. I would like an invitation, please. <laughs> You're so invited. Well, so, okay. So I'll start with CLT. Uh, okay. So I'm the director of Catholic school partnerships at the classic learning test. And, uh, we are, I guess our mission is uh, to reconnect knowledge and virtue and create meaningful assessments for seekers of truth, goodness, and beauty. And we do that by offering, uh, we started by offering a third option assessment to the SAT, ACT that wasn't um, under the clutches of College Board that have associated or signed on with Common Core in 2015. So we wanted to offer an alternative that was going to be more humane, more holistic, um, and more true to um, to good education. So that's, that's what we are doing over at CLT. Uh, we are, we're piloting lower grade testing. So if anybody is, uh, runs a school, uh, a lower school, you know, K K 12 or K eight school, um, and would like to, well, really a K eight, um, or if you have K eight students in your school, uh, we're piloting lower grade testing from third grade to sixth this coming school year. And it's beautiful. We're going to have Lots of good content on the test, C.S. Lewis, um, you know, Saints um, and um, Anne of Green Gables. I'm trying to think Moby Dick. Uh, well, Moby Dick might be a little more advanced for them, but we're having lots of classics is is what I'm re- uh, referring to um, on our assessments. And so if you're interested in piloting that this year, uh, you can reach out to me through uh, email at cnemic. And I guess we could put this in the show notes, uh, cnemic at cltexam.com. And I'd be happy to talk more about that. Um, the next thing I'm working on or I have um, going on is the Catholic Education Invitation. And I created this website 
which is really all it is at this point, um, to essentially educate the laity, lay Catholics, um, and anybody else that might be interested, pastors, school leaders, bishops, um, even if it made it to the Pope, I wouldn't complain, <laughs> but I'm sure that's a stretch, but there's always hope. Uh, so, but it's a, it's a website to educate about the history of Catholic education, because this is something that we, uh, most Catholics are completely unaware of, even Catholic teachers and school leaders, um, are unaware of our history, our tradition, our Catholic intellectual tradition, how education developed in the church from the early church through the different ages up to the modern time. Um, and, and I think it's worth learning that um, so that we can reclaim it because we do have uh, quite, uh, quite a bit of um, tribulation and, and trial in our Catholic schools. And, and I think a return to a more authentic education could greatly benefit any Catholic school. Um, so that's what I'm doing there. And I can uh, send you all that link for the show notes as well. It has been an honor, Chelsea Nemec, to have this conversation and it will not, it will not be the last. And, and God bless you and your work. I think this is probably the most theological of the Magnus podcast yet. And, and theology is a principal science. So uh, this, is not, this is not tangential from the liberal arts. That's right. That's right. Is not is not tangential from the liberal arts in the least. This is sort of where the liberal arts should aim. And so, thank you for a beautiful glimpse of our destination. And uh, we will continue hoping together to to be friends in heaven. Uh, and uh, for Larissa Bianco, I'm John Johnson, reminding you of our names. All right, good one. <laughs> thank you both. You bet. Thank you so much. Adios. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.